We have been uh, studying through the life of David. We're coming towards the, the latter part of the life of David just as a, just as a way of recap. Um, you know, David is the king over Israel. Israel is the nation that God has created. I just, I just want to take just a moment and kind of just to, so we're all on the same page that we understand. Many years before this, God made a promise to Abraham and he told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will be as many as the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore, or as many as the stars of, uh, in the sky. And, you know, Abraham thought that was kind of difficult, kind of hard being he didn't have any children. And uh, he was almost 90 years old when God told him this promise. And it was 10 years later and when he was almost 100 years old that he gave birth to his first son, Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob gave birth to 12 sons who became known as the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation, uh, Jacob and about 70 people went down into the land of Egypt. Uh, they were down in the land of Egypt because of famine. And while they were in the land of Egypt... They were, uh, they were, the Lord was working in, the, in, the, uh, in and amongst the Israelites. They were multiplying. When they would come out of the land of Egypt, about 400 years later, they had multiplied to a number of about 2 million people. Some scholars speculate as many as 3 million people. You say, how could 70 people go in, 2 million come out? It's really easy. Just do the math. Just, I mean, it only takes nine months to have a child. People are going to, there's a multiplication process. It's, it, it makes sense when you actually sit down and do the math. God raised up Moses to deliver them out of the land of Egypt. They came across the desert. They spent their time in the, in the wilderness. The first generation didn't get to go into the promised land because they, because they doubted God and they wouldn't believe in the promises of God. The second generation, their children then went into the promised land. They defeated the Canaanites in the promised land. And the 12 tribes of Israel settled in different areas of the promised land. And when we hear this 12 tribes, that's what we see taking place. For a number of years, God raised up judges to judge in different, in different venues or different areas or different locations. These judges would judge the nation Israel. When I say judge, it, they would help them settle their disputes. They would help rule over them. They would try to show them the, thing, the ways of the Lord. But it came to a point where the nation Israel said, you know what? We don't really like the way that our government, governmental system is in place. You see, the nation Israel was designed to represent God to the people. They were God's chosen people. They were supposed to represent, this is, we have the living God. We, God, you know, God in heaven is our God, while the rest of the world was worshiping multiple false gods and, and idols and things like that. And they decided they, they decided, they came to a point where they said, you know what, everybody else has a king. You know, we want a king. And it really upset the prophet Samuel. And, and Samuel had went to the Lord and said, Lord, they don't want you to rule over them. They want a king. And, and the Lord says, no, no, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And uh, God said, you know what? If they want a king, give them a king. And the people, and he gave him King Saul. And the people wanted King Saul to be their king. And he looked like he'd be a great king. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a good-looking guy. He was going to take them into battle. And he, and he had quite a bit of success. And then not long after taking the throne, King Saul, uh, some, of the, some of his problems began to surface. One of his problems is he wouldn't wait on the Lord. He was told to go down and wait for Samuel to sacrifice. He didn't wait for Samuel. He did it on his own. And God told him that he, the kingdom was going to be torn away from him. Shortly after that, David was anointed king over Israel. He spent a number of years running from King Saul as King Saul was jealous of David because David was having such huge success in battle. The nation Israel was doing battle with the Philistines uh, and David was having success killed Goliath. That's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, and eventually Saul and his son Jonathan were killed and David takes the throne. And at this point in 2 Samuel chapter 20, David has been the king of Israel for about 30 to 35 years. So it's been a long time. He's been in place a long time. You've had a whole generation grow up not understanding what it was like before David was king. 
David was considered a great king. During his time, he was very successful to bring peace to the nation. He conquered the Philistines. Uh, he, he, he defeated the Philistines. And he also was successful in uniting the tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel were being united underneath of him. But David's getting older, and many of the people, you know what happens after something kind of become routine for a while? What do people want? We want change, right? Let's try something new. Let's try something different. And, you know, there was a, David had a, his third son, Absalom, kind of came on the scene. And Absalom, you know, he was probably next in line for the throne, but he wasn't willing to wait for his father to pass away. He wanted to stir the pot. He wanted to take over by force his father's kingdom and take over David's kingdom. So, so he made that attempt. Uh, Absalom tried to take over that. And uh, what we saw break out is a rebellion, and we saw also a civil war in the nation of Israel kind of happen and break out. And ultimately, David prevailed over Absalom. Absalom was killed. And at the request of the people now, David is returning back to Jerusalem. Remember, he had fled when Absalom had come into Jerusalem. Absalom had generated a lot of support, a lot of men with him. And now David had, had, was forced to flee his home and flee Jerusalem. And he, they, did a, they, they had a battle out in the wilderness and, uh, and David prevailed. David's men prevailed. Absalom was dead. And David said, I'm not coming back to Jerusalem until the people want me back. And we saw uh, in the end of chapter 19 that the people wanted David back. And uh, as, as look at, we're gonna, for the sake of context, we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse uh, 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal and Chimham, and he went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the... Men of Israel came to the king and they said to the king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative of ours. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense or has he given us any gifts? Men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have 10 shares in the king, meaning the ten, we have 10 tribes. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise, bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So when we left off at the end of verse 19, there's a dispute going on between the ten northern tribes, which is known as Israel, and the southern tribe, which is known as Judah. You say, wait a minute, Rob, 10 plus 1 is 11. I thought you said there was 12 tribes. There is. There's the tribe of Levi. That was the tribe of priests. And they're always kind of seen as a neutral tribe. Okay, they're not really to the north or to the south. They're kind of, they were intermixed, if you will. They were, they were among the people. Uh, so they didn't have a, a land, they didn't have a, a territory or a land that was given to them. They were to take care of the people and take care of the things of the Lord. So we have this dispute taking place. King David's heading back to Jerusalem. And as he's heading back in, as he's kind of going back home, you see that the nation Israel, uh, the ten tribes, con they, they confront Judah. Hey, why are you taking him? He's our king. No, he's our king. And they're kind of going back and forth. And you say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought we just worked all this out. And here in chapter 20, we're going to see another civil war in Israel start to brew. Take a look at chapter 20, verse 1. And there happened to be a rebel. Kevin, turn this down just a little bit, Merrill. I'm a little loud. Or, I'm sorry, Merrill's back there, not Kevin. And there happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Barakai, a Benjamite, who, and he blew a trumpet and he said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba and the son of Barakai, but the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Do you see what just took place? 
David is on his way back to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden there's another insurgent. There's another rebellion going to take place. The northern tribes, how fickle are they? Weren't they the ones that said, aren't we the ones that brought David back to be king? Well, now they're turning around, and they're going to pledge their loyalty to Sheba. But I want to show you something. There's a word there, and there happened to be a, a rebel, a rebel. Happened to be a rebel there. If, you're, if you have one of those Bibles that have the columns, uh, uh, notes in the middle and things, you might see something like this, son of Belial, son of Belial. And it literally means a worthless or lawless person. It means a person who is not under the law. It is a person who's, well, that's what a rebel is, right? Aren't they rebelling against something? I mean, if children rebel, what are they doing? They're rebelling against what their parents are telling them to do. They're not doing what they're supposed to. So they're a lawless person. They're a person who's saying, I'm not, you, nothing is over top of me. You, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. Literally, it means worthless, lawless person. So here comes this guy, Sheba. And it's, he's a Benjamite. It's like he's probably, most Bible scholars believe that he's from the family of Saul. And what's Sheba doing? He's taking advantage of David's situation, isn't he? He's taking advantage of the fact that David's kind of older. There was already, Absalom already stirred up the people, and there was already one civil war. Now he realizes, wait a minute, if I jump in here, if he is in fact from the family of Saul, maybe he's got some clout, maybe he's from a well-known family, maybe the people will follow me. And we read here that he blows a trumpet. He's taking advantage of his situation. And look at the three statements or the three lines or the three things that he says at the end of verse 1. He says, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. These three statements or these three lines or this phrase, if you will, is going to tell us a lot about the heart of Sheba, but it's also going to identify some very specific tactics of a rebel. You see, I know some of us have been rebellious in life, haven't we? Some of us have rebelled at different times towards different people. Maybe we're in a position where we have, we're a supervisor and there's people rebelling against us. You see, there's a time in our life where both we've been probably rebellious, but we've also been the one being rebelled against. If you've ever been a mom or a dad, I'm sure you've experienced that at some point. So what we're going to look at is these three lines. We're going to break them down, and I want you to see the heart and the tactics of a rebel or someone who's rebelling. Number one, he says, we have no share in David. That word share means portion, part, allotment, inheritance, or heritage. We have no portion in David. We have no part in David. In other words, David is not doing what we want him to do. David's not giving us what we think we're entitled to, what we should be receiving. He's pointing out, he's pointing to David's failure to provide for them. David's we have no share in David. We're not, we're not going to do what he wants us to do. Well, he's, not give, he's not doing for us what we think he should do. In other words, they're not recognizing David's authority. They're not recognizing his authority. And then he goes on to say this, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Inheritance, that word means property or possessions, tangible things, things that are passed down. We don't have any possessions or property in the son of Jesse. But I want you to notice something. He doesn't say we don't have any property or possessions in King David, does he? What does he say in the sons of Jesse? We, don't, we miss it because of our culture, but that's an insult right there. Who was Jesse? He was nobody. He was a farmer. He was a lowly farmer. He's pointing to his family. King David, he's, just, he's a farm boy. You need somebody to be king that's going to be more educated. You need somebody that's going to be, be able to handle the, the throne. You, he's just a son of Jesse. He doesn't even come from good stock. 
He's picking out, he's, he's essentially pointing to David's father and saying, he's a nobody. Why would you want somebody from his family to be king? Then he says, every man to his tent. In other words, he says, forget David, forget about David. Let's just go on home. It's like the kid that takes his football and leaves. Fine, if you won't do it my way, I'm, gonna, I'm just taking my ball and I'm going home. Fine, you don't, it's, you're, not, you're, not, you're not giving me what I think I should get. You're not giving me what I think I'm entitled to. And besides, you're not as good as you should be. You don't even deserve that position. I'm just leaving. I'm out of here. Now, I went through that pretty quick. But here's what I want you to know. Sooner or, life in, in, sooner or later in your life, you're going to face someone who's either rebelling against you or you're the one that's doing the rebellion. Or you might be that very person. Now, I want to just look at these characteristics. Number one, when Sheba said, we have no share in David, he's really, what he's really doing, he's denying the authority of King David. He's completely denying his authority. In other words, he's saying this, you might be a king, but you're not my king. You might be a ruler, but you're not ruling over me. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody's going to, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not putting myself under. You might be the king, but not, not my life. Not, no, no, not, not, not me. You're not putting yourself over top of me. I am not coming underneath of your authority. As a matter of fact, I'm denying the fact that your authority even exists. Number two, that's the, oh, by the way, that's the first thing that a rebel does. They deny the authority of the person that's over top of them. They put themselves in a place where I'm not putting myself under. Isn't that what rebellion is? You're, you're saying to the person that's telling you, as a parent, if I, if I have authority over my children and I tell them to do something, or I tell them not to do something, and they refuse to do it, they're rebelling, what are they simply saying to me? You have no authority over me. I'm denying the fact that you have that authority over me. I'm, whether you're, it doesn't matter. You, you, you don't have that place. You, you can't tell me what to do. Oh, we live in a culture where we hear that, don't we? You can't tell me how to live my life. You can't tell me what to do. You see, the same thing happens with God. Because you can rebel against God, you can rebel against your spouse, you can rebel against your boss, you can rebel against your teacher, you can rebel against your parents. And what do you essentially do? You deny the authority that they have over top of you. That person, you know, you don't have authority over me. I just collect a paycheck here. You're not really my boss. I just do this because I have to. The second thing that he does here is he fails to remember what David had done for them. In other words, it's this. What have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately, David? By saying, by making this statement, you know, he hasn't done, he, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance. You're not really giving us what we want, David. Totally forgets the fact, because it's been 30, 35 years, what it was like before David was king. Forgets the fact that King Saul couldn't be found because he's running around the desert trying to chase down David. Forgets the fact the Philistines that come all the way from the Mediterranean, all the way into Israel. All, all the way up the Jezreel Valley. Forget the fact that the Philistines were invading deep into the Israeli territory. They don't remember all that. They don't, they're enjoying the peace. And it's not what have you done. For, it's what have you done for me lately, David. You see the same thing. If someone's going to rebel, they're going to forget. They're going to fail to remember what you really have done for them. They're not going to remember that you've prayed for them, that you've spent nights talking to them, that you're encouraging them, that you've cooked their foods. Kids don't do that. They don't, remember what they don't really understand what their parents do for them. They don't, and they won't understand that until their parents, what it really took. The, David was the greatest king that Israel ever had, yet there's still rebels coming up against him. Yet there's still insurgents. There's still these people that are coming up that think that they can do it better. God anointed David as king, and yet somebody is coming along saying, I can do it better. I should be king. I'm the one. The third thing that the rebel's going to do, notice he puts David down verbally. 
He starts talking about him behind his back. Starts talking to people about him. He's just a son of Jesse. He's not from a very good stock. He's not even from a very good family. He's worthless. He's, he's, he, they're making fun of his family and the fact that they were farmers. They're, they're nobodies. And the fourth thing, every man to his tent, so Israel. In other words, he says this, I'm going my own way. I'm out of here. I'm doing it my own. Isn't that what kids do? I'm, I'm out of here. I'm out of this house. I'm do, no longer here. I'm doing it my own way. I'm doing it. That's it. I don't care what you say, David. You're not my king. I'm not doing it your way. And people are going to follow me whether they do or not. I'm, I'm doing it my way. It's my life. I'm living it my way. You know what? The way we just described rebellion, it looks the same way in our lives. It looks exactly the same way. It, it, there's nothing changed. It doesn't matter if you're rebelling against God, if you're rebelling against the President of the United States, against your spouse, against your parents, your boss, your teacher. Your church, it looks the same way. The first thing you'll do is begin to deny and reject that person's authority over you. You'll begin to reject their authority. They're no good. They're, I could do it better. I, they, they don't have authority. I'm not recognizing them. They're not, my husband's not an authority in my life. I'm not, I'm not doing that. This church is not an authority. I'm not, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm doing it my way. It doesn't matter if the Bible says it's wrong. I don't care. I'm, I don't like that. Just tear that page out. We're not, we're not following that page. It's rebellion. The second thing that will take place is you'll begin to put down verbally, first mentally, then verbally, the person that you're rebelling against. You'll start in your mind, start thinking negative things about them. You'll start thinking things. You'll, you'll start to put them down. You'll fail to remember what they've done for you. You'll fail to remember that that boss gave you a job when you needed one. You'll fail to remember that you got a pay raise to go to that job. And now because something's not going right, you begin to rebel and you forget all about what's happened before and what it was like before. Lord, help me get that job. Please help me get that job. I hate this stupid job. I hate my boss. I can't stand my boss. Lord, strike him dead. No. You see, the next thing that happens, the next thing that happens is you'll eventually leave and you'll go off on your own. You'll go off on your own because you think you can do it better or they haven't done or given you what you think you wanted or what you think you're entitled to. I don't need this place. I don't need this stinking job. I can go find another one. I don't need this church. I can go find. I don't need this mom and dad. I can go. I can make it on my own. I don't need this whatever. I, I don't need this marriage. I can go find a better marriage somewhere else. I don't need this thing. I can just haul off and do it better on my own. Do you see the picture of rebellion, what it really looks like? You deny the authority. You begin talking about it. You forget what they've really done for you. And before you know it, you're out of there, out on your own. And you're alone. Isn't that where Satan wants you to be? Now I have to pause just for a moment because I want you to take note. There's a difference between someone who's rebelling and someone who's standing on a biblical truth that's being violated or standing on something that you believe to be true. And I want to just show you this. When Daniel, when the prophet Daniel failed to follow the Babylonian customs, it wasn't out of rebellion, but it was out of honor for God. Okay? Think of it this way. When Daniel was taken into Babylonian captivity, he refused to follow the customs. He refused to bow down. He refused to do all those things. It wasn't with the rebellious heart. He wasn't being a rebel. He was instead honoring God because he understood the law of God. He understood what God had commanded him to do. And he said, I will honor God rather than rebel. I mean, I will honor God. God is a greater authority than Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm going to honor him. So he wasn't rebelling against the king. He was in turn honoring God. He didn't deny the king's authority. He recognized the king's authority and held a high position in the kingdom. 
He didn't put the king down verbally. He didn't fall. He didn't fail to understand what the king had given him and the life that he lived. He didn't walk out on the king, but instead, when approached by the king, he explained himself to the king. You see, he was, he was standing on a biblical principle, on a truth that was laid out in God's word. And that's a difference than rebellion. And I want you to understand that. When you stand on truth, that's not necessarily rebellion. Rebellion, it starts with you beginning to deny the authority of the very thing that you're rebelling against. He says in verse 2, or we see the response in verse 2, So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba and the son of Barakai, but the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Sheba developed a following. He developed a following. People were following. All of the northern ten tribes followed. But then we read Judah, they stayed. Here we go again, right? Another civil war. Didn't we just handle this? Look at verse 3. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but he did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Who are that? Who's that? Do you remember who the ten concubines were? When David was forced to leave Jerusalem, he left ten concubines in charge of his house. Remember what Absalom did? When Absalom came and he came into Jerusalem and he was taking over the throne, he set up a tent on the roof of David's house and he went into the all ten concubines and he did that as a way of, of uh, just belittling David. It was the worst possible thing that you could do. Now David comes back to Jerusalem and here's these ten women. That Now what's he going to do with them? Adam Clark said this, he, could not well, he couldn't divorce them. He couldn't punish them because they hadn't done anything wrong, right? They hadn't committed any sin. They, they, were, they were physically raped by Absalom. He, could, he couldn't be with them anymore. They defiled, they'd been defiled by his son. He couldn't marry them. What's he going to do with them? So he puts them away in a place, supports them financially, and they live as widows for the rest of their life. They live as widows. You say, Rob, that's kind of a sad story. That's kind, of, that's kind of ridiculous. Why would they put something like that in the Bible? Listen, I think it serves as a reminder to us the consequences of our sins. Because who's suffering those consequences? Those ten ladies that were concubines. Not only did they suffer the fact that the deal with Absalom, now they're going to live as widows for the rest of their life. We need to understand that our sin is real and it affects many people besides just us. It affects many people besides, and it affects them in real ways, and it stretches far beyond ourselves. When we commit sins sometimes against other people, those consequences are going to live out in those lives of those people. And I think that they put this in the scriptures so that we would realize, listen, when I make mistakes like that, I need to understand. Before I do that, to think hard, long and hard about how is this going to affect my marriage? How is this going to affect my job? How is this going to affect my friendship with somebody? How is this going to, what's the true long-lasting effect of what I'm about to do? You see, Satan always wants us to believe, ah, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. David sinned by having the the consequences, the concubines in the first place. He shouldn't have had them in the first place. They should have been married off to other men who could have provided a loving household for them. Women were seen as property back then. And they still are in many parts of the world. He should have never had them as concubines. And now these women, what they've endured, and it just shows the consequences of David's sin. Verse 4. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer 
than the set time which David had appointed him. Amasa, who was Amasa? Remember who Amasa was? When Absalom rose up against David, he had a general or a guy in charge of his army. That was Amasa. David's general was Joab. And when they came back together, what did David do? David fired Joab and hired Amasa. Actually, he demoted Joab and hired Amasa said, you be in charge of the army. He's trying to bring the country together. Perhaps he was punishing Joab for some bad decisions. So he tells Amasa, listen, David understands. He's a military leader. He knew, I got to deal with this Sheba thing quickly. I can't let it grow. I can't let this go without being dealt with. After all, wasn't that the mistake Absalom made with David? It wasn't dealt right away. He received some bad advice and he followed it by waiting. David goes, I got to do something about it. So he says, calls a mass in and says, hey, go gather the men of Judah. I want you back here in three days. We're going to go, we're going to take care of this Sheba problem. It says, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. Now, either Amasa had gone AWOL or he's not very competent in being a general because he can't gather men for war. They didn't have an army like we have, so to speak. They had to go around and they had to send word. We need everybody to respond. We need to, you know, muster up the troops, get all the people here. In verse 6, after Amasa doesn't show up, David says to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Berkai, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue them, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba. So here they go. Amasa fails to show up. David dispatches Abishai in turn, who in turn would send Joab and his men. Where's Amasa? We don't know where Amasa is at this point. But David realizes, listen, time is of the essence. We've got to get going. We've got, a, we've got an insurgent here. We've got somebody who's rising up, who's dividing, who's trying to take over the nation. Verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Oh, he made it. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. It was, on it was a belt with the sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And he was, as he was going forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails poured out on the ground. He did not strike him again. Thus he died. Got to love the Bible, right? Amasa came before them. Wasn't able to muster the troops together. And he didn't want to be left out. Didn't want to miss what was going on. So he shows up. Now, we know a little bit about Joab, don't we? Joab was a ruthless warrior. Joab was very loyal to David, but he wasn't afraid to put a sword in somebody. We kind of know that. Joab was the one that killed Absalom. Joab was the one that killed, uh, 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 who else did he kill? I can't remember his name. Uriah. Well, he did. He killed Uriah for David as well. There was one other one. I can't remember. Um, Joab was the kind of guy that was loyal, and he did things because he thought they were right, but his method was kind of wrong. I mean, he wasn't afraid to stand up for David, but at the same time, you kind of scratch your head and go, I don't know that that was a good choice, Joab. And here, he comes in deceit. He approaches Amasa with deception. It appears as though he's coming as a friend. When he grabs his beard, it was a, sign, it was a picture of friendship. It was a sign. And all of a sudden, his sword falls out, so it appears that he's coming unarmed. And as he goes to give him a kiss, it says that he stabbed him. He cut him open. He cut him open, and he left him there. One Bible commentator said this. Adam Clark said this. It's very likely that Amasa did not immediately die. He, he, the commentator says, I have known instances of persons living several hours after their insides have been shed out. So he leaves him laying there, and that's... And, 
I've seen that before. I've seen people alive with their, their stomachs open. And th- if you've ever been in a war or even police work or paramedics, you'll, you'll see that. And, and, and you, don't, you don't die immediately. So Joab is this ruthless warrior who just leaves him there. Why? Because he wants to prove a point. He wants to show that I'm the man. I'm the one. He took my job? Uh-uh. No way. He's not taking my job. And so he leaves him there. Then, verse, then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Brachai. Meanwhile, one of the Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the man saw that all the people stood still, they're in shock, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who had come upon him haltered, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba. Do you see what took place? As he, they, he's on the side of the road, essentially bleeding out. They just people are walking by, stopping. They're they're looking. They're, they're, there's there's nothing they can do for him. They can't help him medically, but they're just they're, they're, it's slowing things down. And the the lead the then Joab and Abishai, one of Joab's men, stood near a mass and who says, "Whoever favors Joab, whoever is for David, follow Joab." Now that doesn't give anybody much of a choice, does it? Are you following? Let's say that let's say that Amasa did get a few guys on his side. Well, now he's dead or he's dying. Who are you following? Well, I'm going to follow the living guy, not the dying guy, right? Well, then you better come with us. So off they go. So Joab is on his way. He's got the men coming after Sheba. Look at verse 15. Then they came and they besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. They got word of where Sheba was hiding in a bell. They found out where he was hiding. They attacked the city and they're attempting to tear the wall down. This is called siege warfare. It's a terrible thing for the people of the city. In other words, they're coming after them because they know Sheba's inside of the city. We're coming through the wall. They've obviously closed the wall. They're not, you're not, you've closed the city gate. Well, then we're coming through. We're coming through. Then look at verse 16. Then a wise woman wise woman cries out from the top of the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, Go ahead, I'm listening. So she spoke and she said, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and the faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered, and he said, Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. A wise woman, a wise woman. Sometimes as men, we need to listen to the wise women. We might learn something. We might do something good. But she comes up and she says, hey, Joab, can I talk to you? And what does Joab say? Sure, go ahead, I'm listening. And she goes, this is a city where we're known for ending disputes. This is a peaceful place. We're not really in, we don't want to be involved in this. You're, you're coming, you're trying to tear down the walls of our city. We really don't want to be involved in this. You know, Joab says, look, 
I don't really want to bother your city. If you'll send Sheba out, the problem will be solved and we'll go on our way. And what does she say? Wait, give me some time. Watch, his head will be thrown over the wall to you. Verse 22. Then the woman in her wisdom, she went to all the people. What was she doing? Trying to find out where Sheba was, right? And what is she telling them? Listen, either he goes or that wall's coming down and we're all in trouble. Because when those guys come through, maybe they'd heard about Joab and how ruthless he was. Listen, they're going to break down every one of our doors and they're going to come through every house, house by house, cave by cave, wherever you're living, they're coming in, they're going to find this guy. Why don't we just, you know, turn him over? And the woman said in her wisdom to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba and threw it out to Joab. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and they withdrew from the city every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. The people of the city had to make a decision. Did they want to have war with Joab, or did they want to turn over Sheba? Is there a spiritual analogy that can be made here? One commentator said this. He said, we can make a spiritual analogy out of Sheba, his rebellion and his refuge in the city of Abel. Listen to this. Every man's heart is a walled city. Every sin is a traitor that hides within those walls. God called for, or, or uh, uh, Joab called for Sheba's head, like God calls for our sin. He isn't interested in fighting with us, only our sin. If we love the head of our sin above the life of our soul, we shall justly perish in the vengeance. Now, I know that didn't make a lot of sense, but let me, read it. Let me put it to you in easy-to-understand English. Your heart's like a walled city. Okay? In other words, your heart is like a walled city. Sometimes you can hide sin in your heart. You can hide it and protect it in your heart. And God comes and says, I want that sin out of your heart. I want you, I want you to get rid of that sin. I want you to lay it aside. I don't want you to do that anymore. And God isn't interested in fighting with you. He doesn't want to do battle with you. He just wants you to remove the sin. And then he goes on to say, if you, refer, if you refuse to turn over the sin, you might just be destroyed like the city who refuses to turn over the traitor. That's the picture that he's painting there. That's the picture that he's showing us that, listen, God's saying, listen, in our hearts, sometimes we build this wall and we protect certain things. There's certain things. God, I want you in my life to do certain things for me. But there's certain things in my life that I'm not willing to give up for you. Isn't that rebellion? Isn't that coming against the authority of God? And God comes to the heart and he says, listen, I want you to drop that. I want you to quit that. I want you to stop that. You turn over the head of that thing. You cast it out like the head of uh, Sheba was thrown out. You get rid of that sin in your life. You throw it down there. No, no, Lord, I won't do that. And he goes, well, I just may destroy the whole city then. I might just have to destroy the whole city in order to do that. Do you see the picture that he's showing there? The remaining verses, verses 23, I'm not going to read them, verses 23 through 26, just give us this picture of David's organization and who's doing what within the organization. I want you to look at two things tonight. There's two important points that we've discussed. We've discussed rebellion and we've discussed sin. Both of those are actively at work in our lives and our cultures. It's easier to rebel than it is to stay unified. It, rebellion, division, it happens naturally. It's harder to keep together. It's harder to keep a church, a body of Christ together than it is to separate it. It's harder to keep a husband and a wife together than it is to separate it. It's harder to keep a family cohesive than it is to It's easy to separate. It happens naturally. It's just like here, what's going on? I want to change. I want this. I want that. You're not doing what I think you should be doing. You're not pleasing me. Those things are going to come. It's easy to separate that. 
But when the rebellion comes, will you recognize it as rebellion? Will you recognize it? If you're the one doing the rebelling, would you be willing to realize, you know what, that's me and God's showing me that I'm that rebellious person tonight? What if you're the person that's being rebelled against? Well, if it's in a workplace, I would suggest you have one conversation with the people and I would suggest you do what David did. No, don't cut off their head. Although you might feel like you want to, but I would, I would suggest you remove them from the, from the, from the problem. You, you cut them out, you get rid of them. As a matter of fact, if, some, if you're in a situation or a position of authority and people are rebelling against you, move them, transfer them, get rid of them. Don't keep them there because the problem will only grow larger and larger and larger. The only place that doesn't work is a marriage. It doesn't work that way in a marriage because when you said I do, you meant it and you need to then work with that marriage. You need to keep working on that together. You don't, just, you don't, you don't remove that problem. You have to stay with that problem. You have to make that problem work. But any other place, you do exactly what David did. So there's two important points, rebellion and sin about the sin in the heart. You know, here's what I know. One of the jobs or the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of sin. I don't know about your life, but I know I'm convicted of sin all the time. If I wasn't convicted of sin, I think there'd be a bigger problem. Doesn't the Lord convict you of sin? As you sit here and we talk about this, isn't there, as I, I know this, even as I say the word sin, you know what the Lord's talking to you about. I don't have to tell you what the sin is. I don't have to go through, all right, this is the list of sins that we're talking about here tonight. I don't need to make a list because as I say, there's a sin in your heart that God wants you to get rid of. I know the Holy Spirit is doing his job and he is telling you right now what that is. The question is, are you going to repel? Are you going to deny his authority in your life? No, 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 Lord, not me, not me. You see, those steps of rebellion, they take time to unfold. They don't happen in an instant, it takes time. First you deny the authority. Then you start to talk about it. Then you realize, then you forget what they did for you. You forget what the person, the authority has done. Don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget what Christ has done for you. When, before, when you make the decision to rebel against the Lord, you're not remembering what he's done for you because if you were, you'd never be rebelling. And you begin to talk about it. And then blasphemy kicks in. And before you know it, what do you say? I'm out of here. I'm on my own. I don't need this. I don't need God. God didn't work for me. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. He didn't act the way I wanted to be. I wanted something different. He didn't show me what, he, what I was supposed to see. I'm out of here. See you, Lord. See you, church. See you, husband. See you, wife. See you, teacher. See you, mom. See you, dad. I can handle this on my own. I don't need you guys anymore. I can live this life. You see, as believers, what's the first thing I have to do? Recognize the authority of God, don't I? I need to be willing to say, Lord, you are the authority in my life. Your word is the authority. And I am willing to follow that no matter how difficult it is. No matter how painful it is, no matter how much it hurts, I'm willing to battle every day for that. I'm not going to forget what you've done for me, Lord. I'm not going to forget that. I'm not going to be like the kid who has no idea that what the parents have really done for them. Instead, I want to be the kid who realizes and appreciates what my God has done for me. I'm going to remember that you created me before the foundation of the earth, that you predestined me, that you called me, that you have a purpose for me, that you died on the cross so I could be forgiven for my sins. I'm going to remember all those things. They're going to be at the forefront of my thoughts, not you're not doing what I want, so I'm going to go find somebody else. I'm going to go find somewhere else. I'm going to go find this. You know, let's just take a few minutes and pray because I know how the Lord works and I know the Holy Spirit convicts and I know the Lord as I talk about rebellion and I talk about sin I know you're convicted. You know how I know that? Because I was convicted. If you have any interest in what the Lord's saying at all, 
You can't talk about those two things because as I look into my life, what do I see? Both of those things at different stages, at different times. It's a constant battle to put myself back under the Lord. It's a constant battle to put myself back under a boss or back under those things or those people or those positions of authority over top of you. It's constant. If God says this, why would you say anything different? Let's pray. Let's just take a few minutes and go to the Lord quietly. Just quiet time between you and him. Just two or three minutes. Finish jotting down a note. Go to him and say, Lord, is there sin in my life that needs to be changed? Is there sin I need to throw over the wall? And Father, is there a rebellion in my life? Am I rebelling against you? And if so, would you be willing to admit that rebellion to the Lord and come back under his authority, placing him back in the authority over your life? And if you have somebody rebelling against you, you're a parent or a boss or whoever, ask the Lord what to do next. So Father, we come before you just to take a few minutes before we close tonight. But we've heard from you in your word Lord, we need to hear from you now in prayer. Would you minister to us now? Would you tell us, may we sit quietly and listen as we ask these questions. Am I in rebellion to you, Lord? And is there a sin in my life that I need to throw over the wall? And we sit and wait for answers to those questions. Then may we be obedient to you.